Good evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Jordan. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. On October 1, 2018, the first Monday in October last year, the U.S. Supreme Court began its most recent term. On Thursday, June 27, 2019, the court issued its final decisions of the term. During this show, we're going to talk about some of the major decisions from the Supreme Court's term and their implications. Joining us for this discussion are NCCU Law Professor and Associate Dean Malik Edwards and NCCU Law Professor Don Corbett. Both professors, Edward and Corbett, teach a number of courses, including constitutional law. And probably the most anticipated and consequential cases decided this term were the partisan gerrymandering cases, one of which came out of North Carolina and the other, Maryland. So, Irv, we're going to start with you. What can you tell us about these cases? Well, the uh, <clears throat> case is titled Rucho versus Common Cause, and uh, Rucho was the uh, senator head of the uh, redistricting committee uh, in uh, 2010 uh, in, uh, in North Carolina, uh, where uh, the uh, legislature redrew the uh, lines for uh, the state house, uh, the state senate, and uh, congress. And in doing so, uh, developed a scheme in which uh, uh, Democratic voters were basically packed into few congressional districts and senatorial uh, districts for the purpose of creating a, uh, uh, a majority, a supermajority for uh, Republicans uh, such that they would have uh, complete control over the uh, legislature, or at least that was the uh, effects of that. Uh, that uh, redistricting plan was uh, challenged uh, successfully for racial discrimination, and uh, that case uh, uh, was decided uh, or affirmed uh, by the uh, U.S. Supreme Court in an earlier decision in which the uh, lines had to be redrawn. Uh, following that, there was a challenge to the partisan gerrymandering uh, that uh, the uh, legislature uh, engaged in uh, where they boldly proclaimed uh, that they were going to develop a uh, scheme that would advantage uh, the uh, Republican Party. Uh, in fact, that was one of the uh, considerations that uh, uh, the uh, legislature created for drawing the lines. And they uh, hired a uh, Republican mapmaker uh, to uh, come in uh, to uh, draw the lines uh, in conjunction with uh, the uh, mandate from the General Assembly, and that was to uh, maximize the number of Republican districts uh, that uh, controlled elections from that point uh, forward. So that was challenged by uh, Common Cause, and that is an organization seeking 
uh, a non-partisan gerrymandering commission uh, in the uh, in the state. The uh, uh, lower district court uh, found that that was uh, unconstitutional. That what the legislature had done uh, violated uh, the equal protection uh, clause, and that Democratic uh, voters were treated dissimilarly from Republican voters with the uh, idea that the Democratic Party and its efforts to uh, elect people of uh, that party uh, would be uh, working under a a millstone while the uh, Republicans would have uh, the opportunity to expand uh, their power within the legislature. Uh, That was uh, uh, determined to be unconstitutional. The case went to the Supreme Court along with a, uh, another case from Maryland, uh, where the uh, Democratic uh, Party had engaged in uh, efforts to uh, stack and pack or uh, divide a formerly uh, Republican district uh, to increase the number of Democrats who were elected to uh, Congress. So you had, uh, before the Supreme Court, uh, a challenge to uh, Republican gerrymandering and as well as a uh, challenge to Democratic uh, gerrymandering. And the uh, court basically punted uh, and uh, said that uh, we are not empowered uh, to make a decision that within the uh, constitutional framework of the uh, United States uh, political parties uh, are free uh, to uh, uh, engage the process in any way they deem appropriate and necessary as long as uh, racial discrimination uh, is not uh, involved, uh, which is uh, condemned by the uh, 15th Amendment and the uh, Voting Rights uh, Act, Uh, but that uh, these are political questions uh, and these are political decisions that political parties make. And since the beginning of time, at least the beginning of time in the United States, uh, legislative bodies have been free uh, to uh, create whatever districts they want to uh, create. And then they go back through the history uh, where uh, they make the point that it is not, uh, it has not been unusual uh, for there to be all Democratic Party uh, delegations uh, in Congress and uh, uh, overwhelming uh, Republicans and Democratic parties at the uh, at the state level. So that is not something that is uh, that creates a constitutional violation. Although we view this as being extreme, uh, that it is undemocratic, uh, but uh, being undemocratic does not make it unconstitutional, and therefore uh, we uh, decline. Uh, this is a political question. Uh, so we will not decide uh, who is right and who is wrong because the Supreme Court does not have the authority uh, to uh, to do so. Interesting was the uh, it was a five four uh, opinion. Uh, the uh, response from the um, uh, so called liberal block of the court, uh, which basically said that uh, if there was uh, a time to punt on a case. Uh, this was the wrong one uh, because what we're talking about here is uh, 
destroying the very fabric and vibration uh, foundation of a democratic uh, society uh, dealing with the right to vote and legislators are uh, not to choose their voters, but instead voters are to choose their legislators. That the uh, uh, fundamental purpose of a democratic society is that the people uh, decide, and the people uh, is the uh, uh, foundation of our governmental uh, system and not the uh, politicians. And uh, here we are allowing politicians now to maneuver citizens around, and clearly that violates the, uh, the Constitution uh, in uh, many ways, but more particularly uh, with respect to equal protection based on people's uh, political uh, views. In the uh, uh, Maryland case, uh, they also focus on the issue of First Amendment uh, and that it was a, uh, a viewpoint uh, discrimination uh, that uh, was uh, in place and the uh, majority held even there that, well, that might be true, but it's not our place uh, to make a call with respect to the uh, redistricting uh, process. So uh, we're back where we are, and the uh, legislatures around the state now will probably be more robust in uh, gerrymandering, and the only way that you can change uh, the configuration of uh, those who are elected is to uh, have them voted out of office and then a new party take over so that they will then gerrymander it then in another uh, direction. Uh, so this was a disappointment uh, to many people, uh, but uh, basically followed the tradition of the court uh, in having a hands-off policy with respect to uh, partisan uh, gerrymandering uh, in, the, in the various uh, states. And uh, so they did not uh, uh, choose to uh, break the precedent uh, that the court has engaged in over the years. And, you know, Irv, so you mentioned 5-4 decision. And, you know, this is one of those cases that demonstrates the importance of who's in the White House because that determines who's actually on the bench at the Supreme Court level. And for, you know, a couple of years... Um, there has been hope that the Supreme Court would find p partisan gerrymandering to be in violation of the Constitution because of Justice Kennedy, who had said, yes, it's unconstitutional. The question is, how do you determine whether um, the nature of the partisan gerrymandering is so offensive that it offends the Constitution? Well, when Justice Kennedy retired, um, the concern was, of course, he would be replaced by someone who would... Uh, reached the conclusion that partisan gerrymandering is a political question, non-justiciable political question, which means that the court won't decide the issue, even mm -hmm. though, as you noted, the court recognizes that that is undemocratic. Um, and we're going to talk about some other decisions where, you know, the makeup of the court makes a difference on how these decisions come down. Five, four decisions, it's a, a question of one, one, you know, one vote. Um, Don and, and Malik, either of you have any, anything to add about uh, the Rucho case? I mean, as you pointed out, and I think it's what Robert said, is that this should be done through, it's a political question that it should be done through the political process. But if they're gerrymandered to the extent they are, then are you actually blocked from using the political process? Isn't that the reason we have the courts? Um, and so I think it's punting becomes even, I think, more important. And I think there were constitutional arguments that they could have picked up on. 
Well, and, and I think this was uh, whether they were willing uh, to pick up uh, on it. Uh, it was interesting that they had both Democratic gerrymandering and Republican gerrymandering simultaneously so that it doesn't appear to be a partisan decision from the court. Uh, you had uh, precedent from other cases where the uh, court had uh, took the same, had taken the same position uh, with respect to uh, partisan uh, gerrymandering. So now when you look at gerrymandering, you, you, you either have to find racial uh, the, uh, uh, discrimination uh, in the uh, motivation of the uh, legislators, or uh, you have to uh, work through the political process uh, to get uh, the uh, gerrymanderers out of, uh, of office. Uh, and it had been uh, basically uh, acknowledged that this was extreme gerrymandering, that uh, all political parties did it, but in this case, you were dealing with extreme. We'd go all the way uh, down the line. And uh, uh, Justice Kagan had uh, made the point that, you know, when you look at the scale, if you're all the way to the extreme, then that by itself is uh, evidence of uh, being unconstitutional in the sense that people are not uh, uh, able to vote their conscience uh, and have political, the same political effect uh, as uh, as other voters who are favored in this uh, in this process, but uh, it's going to be interesting now as you set up for 2020, uh, because the uh, people who are elected in uh, 2020 will draw the lines for the next 10 years, and uh, so there will be a lot of money spent uh, in every state uh, to ensure that a particular political party uh, will be in control of the uh, process so that they can redistrict uh, both the House and the congressional, uh, both the state and the uh, congressional uh, levels for the next 10 years, and they will be able then to uh, utilize their powers to uh, implement the policies of that party. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's disappointing, but not surprising. Uh, they're basically telling folk use your political process in such a way to create the change you want, but it's, it's this very tactic that precludes them from being able to do that successfully. So it's, it's, it feels intellectually dishonest on some <laughs> levels. Yeah. And, you know, there, the fight is not over yet, though. We should mention that um, in North Carolina, partisan gerrymandering is being challenged at the state level. So, Irv, can you talk a little bit about um, how, how that works mm -hmm. and, and 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 the and the court uh, dealt with that uh, that uh, if uh, there is to be this challenge it ought to come uh, in the states because the uh, states uh, have uh, have constitutions uh, that they can then and they used uh, examples I think Pennsylvania was one Florida was another uh, where the uh, Supreme Court there had uh, uh, dealt with this issue of partisan uh, gerrymandering uh, so that uh, there is a safety valve in that, and uh, Chief Justice uh, Roberts uh, said that the uh, states can now look at that with respect to their own constitution. Uh, as you indicated, the, uh, uh, there is right now a case going on in uh, Raleigh uh, where that issue is before the, the uh, court, and a three-judge panel is looking uh, at uh, the evidence that's presented there 
one of the things that uh, did not get picked up in the Rucho uh, decision, hinted at but not picked up, was the uh, Hoffla, uh, the map maker, uh, who was uh, who died uh, uh, last year and uh, left uh, all of his records uh, in place, and his daughter uh, found those records and turned them over to uh, Common Cause. And in those records, uh, he spoke uh, to the uh, motivation and the, uh, the, the, the purpose of his involvement in all of these different uh, redistricting uh, efforts and said that was uh, to gain power for Republicans and that uh, whatever uh, machinations they could come up with, uh, to uh, ensure that the Republicans would be in control, that that was what he was going to do. And I would expect that information from the Hoffler file will be presented in state court uh, while it was not uh, presented in uh, federal court uh, for the Supreme Court to, uh, to look at. But, uh, but we'll see. All right, all right. So the fight continues. Uh, we're going to have to take a quick break, but you are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking about the most recent Supreme Court term, and we have with us in the studio as our guest, NCCU Law Professor and Associate Dean Malik Edwards and NCCU Law Professor Don Corbett. We'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with NCCU law professors Malik Edwards and Don Corbett about the most recent Supreme Court term. And right before the break, we were talking about the Rucho case, which stems from North Carolina and the partisan gerrymandering issue. Uh, that's probably the, the biggest, most consequential case coming out of this year's um, Supreme Court term. The other is the census case, and that's the Department of Commerce v. Uh, New York. Malik, why don't you tell us a little bit about that case? Okay. So I guess this case speaks to the administrative law nerds amongst us. <laughs> Um, and so uh, when President Trump came in, he basically told the Department of Commerce, so the Department of Commerce decided that they were going to have a question about citizenship on the census. And part of the argument against it is that it would have a chilling effect, that people will not participate in the census and you'll get an inaccurate count that immigrants will be undercounted and therefore will not be properly represented because they don't want to out themselves. They don't want to identify that, and it doesn't have to be them, but that some member within their house citizenship status may not be clear. And so this was challenged by a number of jurisdictions and ultimately the court did everything that you can do. They affirmed in part, reversed in part, and remanded. And so the case is looked at, I think, as a victory because ultimately the the citizenship question is left off. Whether it is in fact a victory, I don't think it is. I think it will be on eventually and the president has already talked about what he wants to do. So 
ultimately he didn't push back on the court, which is what people were afraid he was going to do and that there would be a constitutional. But they said that the enumeration clause, which is what sets up the counting purposes for the census, does allow for citizenship questions. And it was interesting in the oral arguments as they went through this that you saw traditionally conservative justices relying on international law because generally in the international context, they do ask questions about census. And they said, why don't we do what everybody else does? Which is, I say it's interesting because oftentimes we say that we're not bound to follow international understandings of the law. But they did reach the conclusion that the enumeration clause does allow for it. The good part is they found that the Secretary's broad authority under the Census Act is still reviewable under the Administrative Procedures Act, and so the court has authority. So they didn't punt in the way that they did in the earlier case by saying it was a political question or that it fell within executive privilege. They also found that the Secretary's decision had evidentiary support, that he didn't violate the Census Act. So all this is setting up in the long run to probably see a question um, really, it's the sixth part, which says the secretary's explanation for including citizen questions didn't, in the census did not permit a meaningful judicial review. And so under Administrative Procedures Act, you have to have develop a good enough record so that it can actually be reviewed. And because they didn't go through proper processes, the court wasn't able to determine, which is why they had to remand for a finding of fact. So the ultimate victory comes more from a procedural posture than from a finding of law. And, and isn't there also this issue of, um, so uh, again, 5-4 decision, um, Chief Justice Roberts writing the plurality, at least uh, in terms of the remand. Um, the reason behind, what was the reason behind that the Commerce Secretary gave for wanting the citizenship question on the census? and? And I think in terms of um, what this administration is willing to do to support policies that seem discriminatory. And, and basically what I'm saying is, you know, lie about it. <laughs> right. And, of course, the court is not going to hold that it's a lie. They have to accept the arguments given. Um, well, that was the interesting part about this uh, this opinion because uh, all the way up to uh, section six of the opinion, the court uh, is saying that uh, you know what they did was proper. Mm -hmm. uh, but now we get to the end of the opinion. We don't believe the justification because you've not provided an adequate basis uh, for that going into. Uh, a factual question, which normally the uh, Supreme Court, or appellate court, of uh, course, uh, don't do. I mean, that's mm -hmm. kind of, you know, I think that was right. the point that was kind of unusual that they would drift off uh, that way. And uh, But uh, Justice Roberts joined the so-called liberal uh, minority uh, to be the uh, fifth vote in uh, essentially delaying this decision such that there could not be uh, some uh, finding of facts before uh, the uh, census had to be uh, published. Well, it's interesting. Like I said, I don't know if I consider myself an administrative law nerd or not. Probably the answer yes to that question. But the, the way the politics makes for strange bedfellows. 
because here you have the conservatives asking for administrative discretion at the same time that they are attacking giving discretion to administrative agencies. Um, and so there is this tension, I think, even within that context. And so I think they could have gotten around it by just saying the deference should be given, that reasonable explanations provided by the secretary should be accepted, mm -hmm. and they could have gotten away with it. But because they created the justification after the fact, it wasn't supported by the record that was in place, which is why I think we see the remand in place. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's pretty damning, though, that that was the case, though, right? Because yeah. usually they will accept anything. Just say, okay, that's what you all want to do. That's what you can do. And then, as you said, the opinion lays out in such a way you feel like that's where it's going. And then it just shows you how flimsy the excuse was mm -hmm. if they couldn't attach that principle that right. you described to finding a way to justify it. Right, because they made an argument that this was needed for gap filling, and so we had more accurate information. But they couldn't establish that there were, in fact, gaps that needed to be fit. And <laughs> gaps that would facilitate the um, administration's enforcement of civil rights laws. Right. That, I mean, that's where you have this blatant lie that, that turned out to be, you know, not surprisingly, completely inaccurate. And, and I think it was going to be really difficult for Chief Justice Roberts, who I think by all accounts is an institutionalist. I mean, he does recognize that his role as Chief Justice is, is slightly different than, say, an associate justice. Um, where there's clear evidence that this was not the reason why the citizenship question was being placed on the census. And for him to say, along with the other conservative justices, it's okay for you to blatantly lie. We're going to let you, this administration, do exactly what you want. Um, but I, I think you're absolutely right, Malik, that, you know, depending on who's in the White House, um, you know, 10 years from now will determine, you know, when when the government is starting to prepare the census questions for the next time, um, who's in the White House is going to determine whether or not you get that citizenship question on it. And if you have a Republican administration, you know, they're going to learn from this experience. They're going to make sure that they have, you know, laid the foundation. Uh, if you have a conservative Supreme Court, uh, they're going to accept that, you know, um, that that the support for that. And we're going to get that question on there. And I think it is pretty well established that a citizenship question will result in an undercount and an undercount helps the Republican Party, not the Democratic Party. Um, so now there is a question of whether or not there are reasons why you would want this. Right. Is there a way to ask the question and use the political process to stop the undercount? So I think there are reasons why you might want to know information about citizenship. And it's the reason you do see it in the international context, because we can have questions about services that need to be provided, such as ESL teachers, right? What does it look like? What's the population of the states? What are going to be the shifts? But that's not what they were using it for. As you said, they argued that there were civil rights contexts, and there probably are civil rights issues where having this information would help in providing services. The question becomes, how do we do this and how do we gather this information in a way that's not going to have a chilling effect on people participating in the political process? Right. Well, it's all, it also, you know, when you go back and read the opinion, goes back to the point you made earlier, April, about the importance of uh, who the president is. 
because the president also appoints district court judges. And it was at the district court level that the uh, uh, suspicion uh, was raised about the uh, uh, inaccuracy of the uh, justification uh, for that. And the judge uh, uh, at the district court level uh, then uh, enjoined uh, them from using that. And uh, so that carried up. Had that opinion uh, at the district court level been different, I think the outcome would have been different uh, as, as well. So, you know, these frontline judges or district court uh, judges are very uh, important as well, and they are appointed for life uh, by, the, uh, by, by the president. So uh, as soon as you uh, get your appointment, then when they bring the citizenship question to you, you know what to do with it. <laughs> and they've been getting them through faster than they have ever. Just the number of justices are coming through and how quickly they are processing just judges. Mm -hmm. And both the cases, I mean, this is going to be very generic by comparison to what's been said, but both the cases really underscore the fact that all these elections really, really matter, mm -hmm. whether they're national elections or state elections, local elections, city council elections, school, all of them matter. And and for some of our folk, I don't want to chastise people, but like I have friends that say, well, I vote for the Super Bowl, <laughs> meaning the big presidential <laughs> election, but they don't vote any time between them, you know, but, but all of them really matter. And mm -hmm and people need to be informed about the different ways that they matter. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and just to kind of underscore that point, go back to Rucho. So we know that as far as, you know, federal oversight when it comes to partisan gerrymandering, that's that's done. Mm -hmm. But, you know, depending on who you have as your state judges, you know, our state judges are elected. Um, you know, that's going to it's going to come down to what our state does. And we're very fortunate that that at least from my perspective, we've got a great um, North Carolina Supreme Court um, group of justices yeah. and North Carolina Court of Appeals. Yeah, and, and we have a three-judge panel, and I have to say that one of the judges on the three-judge panel is one of our grads. That doesn't mean that they're going to necessarily <laughs> decide it the right way, uh, but uh, we, we, we're, we're in the mix, and uh, those of you who taught her uh, constitutional law will see uh, exactly how she is uh, able to uh, apply Mm -hmm. uh, that knowledge to, uh, to this case. Mm -hmm. That's good because we don't want to change our grade at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so right, again, enhance it. <laughs> so all elections matter. Yeah, vote at every level. All right, so the next case I'm going to talk about really quickly is the Flowers v. Mississippi case, and I'll go ahead and, and tee this one up. Um, and this is an interesting case because there is an outstanding podcast which delves into this particular case. Um, the podcast is called In the Dark, and it's the second season uh, that focuses on this Flowers case. And so this is a case that um, deals with Curtis Flowers. He was tried for the murder of four people six times. Um, four of those times, the case was either um, uh, vacated uh, because of the prosecutor's unconstitutional use of peremptory challenges. And so peremptory challenges, when a trial, when a jury is being impaneled, um, you've got, and if we're talking about a criminal case, this applies in civil cases as well, but both parties have an opportunity to strike jurors without giving a reason. And so if a potential juror responds to a question and that question gives rise to an issue as to whether they can decide the case fairly, that juror can be dismissed for cause. Uh, but then you also have peremptory challenges where if you're just feeling in your gut that this person's not on your side or there aren't sufficient reasons to dismiss a juror for cause, 
you have peremptory challenges that can be used, even though you can dismiss a juror, a potential juror, without giving a reason, you cannot use your peremptory challenges in a race-based way. And so that was a, a decided by the Supreme Court in 1986 in a case called Batson v. Kentucky. And so in this particular case, you had Mr. Flowers, who uh, was accused of murder in 1996. Um, he was tried, um, like I said, six times. In the first four trials, the prosecutor was, or the first three trials, the prosecutor was found to have used his peremptory challenges in a race-based way, which meant that those were uh, conducted in a way that violated the Constitution. Um, the fourth trial, there were two African Americans who made it onto the jury pool, and that was um, that case was decided by um, it was a mistrial. And so he was tried again. There were some other technical problems with trial number five. And then we have trial number six. And there was one African-American who was on the jury. There were five potential African-Americans who were struck. Uh, the reasons for them being, being struck were incredibly suspicious. And the Supreme Court had to decide whether within that sixth trial, uh, the prosecutor again violated the Constitution by using race-based peremptory challenges. Um, so in a 7-2 um, decision, and this was a case that was authored by uh, Justice Kavanaugh, the Supreme Court found that the trial court erred by concluding that the state did not violate the uh, Constitution. So in essence, what the Supreme Court said was, based on all of the evidence, there was sufficient evidence to support the conclusion that the prosecutor did, in fact, like he did in the previous trials, exercise race-based peremptory challenges, and the case was sent back. Um, one of the reasons, a couple of reasons why this case is so interesting is, one, just the history behind it. And I really recommend that you listen to the podcast if, if this um, uh, discussion here is piquing your interest with respect to this particular case. Um, it's also interesting because you had seven of the justices that clearly recognized that the history behind this case uh, just completely supported the conclusion that this prosecutor, who was the same prosecutor who prosecuted this case from the very beginning, uh, just continued with his regular practice, which was trying to remove African Americans from the jury, which is a clear violation of the Constitution. Um, Justice Thomas, not surprisingly, but um, disappointingly, uh, was in the dissent. He authored the dissent. It was joined that dissent was joined by uh, Justice Gorsuch. And one of the things that Thomas said was um, he actually put into question whether Batson remained uh, good law. Uh, and basically, when you think about the history of African-Americans being excluded from juries to have the sole African-American justice on the Supreme Court issue a dissent particularly given the history in this particular case, given the history of Mississippi, um, writing a dissent saying, you know, the only good thing about this opinion is that they can retry Mr. Flowers again. Um, so, again, not surprising, but very disappointing. Incredibly interesting case. Um, any thoughts? Any other thoughts? I know I went through that quickly. Yeah, well, we will have to take a break. Uh, right now, and uh, because this is really an interesting case, one that affects us even here in North Carolina uh, now. But uh, we're going to take a break, and I uh, want you to stay with us when we come back to uh, continue uh, the discussions about uh, Flowers versus uh, Mississippi. So we'll be right back. 
Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review, where we are doing a uh, review of the uh, uh, recently concluded uh, Supreme Court uh, session uh, dealing with uh, cases from uh, 2018 and 2019. That session ended uh, June uh, uh, 30th of uh, this year. Well, actually, June 27th of uh, of this year. We have uh, Don Corbett uh, with us, and uh, uh, he is a professor at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and Malik Edwards, who is uh, the new uh, associate dean at uh, North Carolina Central University School of Law, uh, both uh, versed in constitutional law along with uh, our co-host uh, here, and uh, we're talking about some of the uh, recent decisions from that uh, from that court. We ended up uh, talking about uh, Flowers versus Mississippi. And uh, just for your information, the uh, issue of uh, the use, uh, racial use of preemptory challenges is something that is uh, present here in North Carolina uh, as well. Uh, the uh, uh, practice of most district attorney's uh, offices is to encourage uh, the dismissal of uh, African-Americans from jurors, particularly in uh, cases dealing with uh, violent uh, crimes under the belief that uh, merely because you are an African-American that you are disinclined uh, to uh, vote for conviction of a person. So uh, so as we talk about flowers, uh, just remember that those uh, comments are applicable uh, here in uh, North Carolina in many ways. Uh, and something that uh, many people experience in the state, and our our Supreme Court uh, has not recognized or give uh, given due diligence uh, to uh, the uh, Batson ruling and the uh, uh, prohibition against uh, the use of uh, race and uh, the use of preemptory challenges. Okay. Any other thoughts about flowers? Okay. All right. So the next case we're going to talk about is American Legion. Um, Don, why don't you tell us what that case is about? Sure, sure. So this case involves the First Amendment, and one of the rights that the First Amendment protects is freedom of religion. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with some of the detail, uh, the First Amendment guarantees citizens freedom of religion through what's called the Free Exercise Clause. I don't know. Do you remember watching What's Happening back in the 70s? <laughs> of course. <laughs> okay, so over the weekend, I thought about this because over the weekend, there's an episode where Rerun, who was one of the characters, joins a religious cult, and the cult basically uh, dupes him out of his money. But their religious figurehead is literally a head of lettuce. So they worship this head of lettuce called Ralph. And then, you know, it's tragic. Rerun loses all his money. But then, uh, anyway, I digress just a touch to tell you that in the United States, if there are people who choose to worship a head of lettuce, and it's a sincerely held belief, then the government can't interfere with your ability to do that. So that's what's called the Free Exercise Clause. Uh, the First Amendment also guarantees citizens the, what's called freedom from religion through what's called the Establishment Clause, which basically means that government can't impose certain religious beliefs upon citizens. So uh, North Carolina, for instance, could not adopt Catholicism as a state religion or, or uh, the Baptist face of the state religion. That would violate the Establishment Clause. So you have both of those entities that protect you. So it's freedom of religion and freedom from religion. So the case involves a, a memorial park in Maryland. And the park was designed to honor veterans. And I believe it was uh, 
maybe 1918 was when it was you built the park is that what the right terminology is so the park was built in 1918 completely private entity and as a part of the park it had a very large i think 40 feet in uh, height etc uh cross and of course the cross is something that we know as a symbol of christianity but remember now it was instructed by or was constructed by a private entity so no constitutional problems as long as it's a private entity that's involved uh, then in the early 60s, the government of Maryland got involved and an arm of the state government bought the land, including the cross. So that meant that they now had to take care of it, which means that you have state dollars that are needed to maintain the park, including uh, this particular cross. So to some people from the outside looking in, the thought process was that because the cross is a symbol of Christianity, you're now spending money in such a way to endorse Christianity. And the argument was from a group called the American Humanist Association that, that violates the Establishment Clause uh, because the argument is that this kind of display, this kind of maintenance means you have this excessive entanglement with religion, which is, uh, runs afoul of the clause. So it gets up to the Supreme Court, and the court basically determined that the, court, or that the cross didn't violate the Establishment Clause, didn't violate the First Amendment. It's, uh, it's interesting for a couple of reasons both of which, I, and I'm going to lose like 90% of the audience here, <laughs> because they're really constitutionally driven uh, nerd stuff, as, as Professor <laughs> Edwards referenced a second ago. Uh, we've had some iterations of the court that have determined that there needs to be a very high, firm wall um, between church and state. So essentially what that means is that we don't want any overlap between church and state. Uh, meaning everything has to be completely separate. Uh, this particular decision, though, suggests that the court is not on this particular page and that they're more likely to take a more tolerant view of these kinds of religious displays. Now, the argument that the court made was that uh, this is more of a historical kind of reference. The cross doesn't stand alone for Christianity. And we've seen that in other contexts where the court has determined that a government action or actor has not violated the Establishment Clause in what it calls historical traditions of American society, such as having in God we trust on our money, uh, making people stand and say, God save this honorable court when people go to court. Those are all things that are tied to historical traditions that the courts say doesn't work as an endorsement of religion. So that's the uh, mindset that they adopted here. And they said that as long as basically the government's taking a neutral approach, then there's no endorsement, no entanglement, and there no, therefore no violation of it. So it does leave open the window, potentially, for more interaction between uh, religious entities and government. So we'll have to see how that plays out over time. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is that for about, th I guess it was maybe, I'm not good at math. Lemon was decided in 1973, maybe? Okay, we'll, we'll say 73 since nobody knows. There's, there's a case called Lemon v. Kurtzman. Uh, which is the case that the court has used to assess Establishment Clause uh, challenges for the last 40 years. And the interesting thing about this opinion is that Lemon basically gets no discussion whatsoever from any of the uh, justices, only to say that it is an inexact fit for this particular discussion, which again, as Dean Edwards suggested earlier, lays the framework for maybe this is the end of Lemon. Uh, it could be a good thing in the sense that sometimes lemon is difficult to apply. It doesn't necessarily apply cleanly to every establishment clause challenge, but the, the, you, you deal with the devil you know. And the problem is what would the next standard look like? Would it be a little too loose that would encourage more government interaction with religion, or would it be 
a little bit too narrow, which would create a different problem in a different context. So, but at least right now, <clears throat> it looks as though you have maybe six judges, with the exception of Sotomayor and Kagan and, and Ginsburg, they're probably ready to throw uh, Lemon out to pasture. So we just have to see what the next couple cases look like, uh, whether they in, infringe upon things that are really more directly related to religion as opposed to just a symbol of religion like the crosses, and then we'll have to see how they go with it. Is this a, a wide departure from past uh, cases uh, where the court has dealt with the same uh, issue with respect to uh, Christmas decorations? Yeah, it depends, it depends on who you ask. Yeah, right. and, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, where there is a uh, secular mm -hmm. uh, component to the, uh, to the celebration. Uh, as well, and here you have a cross that was uh, basically came with the land uh, and not uh, something erected by the state That's uh, to uh, uh, promote uh, a religious uh, position. And uh, so, is, is this really kind of consistent there or oh, yeah. a departure? You can absolutely make the argument that it's consistent because when you think about the totality of the circumstances and why the park was built in the first place, it was built to honor veterans. And that could be argued as a secular purpose. Uh, now, the cross and its intonation and all that has to do with it, you know, I think that's going to be interpreted by different people in different ways. But the cross, the purpose of the park was really to honor veterans. And that in, in and of itself, in the big picture, really has nothing to do with religion on its face. So I think you could make the, the argument that these are consistent. But then it's like, you know, do I believe what I see or what I'm looking at? You know, and, <laughs> and, and usually when we think about the cross, especially one that's 40 feet tall, you might tie that to religion in some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. you know? So it just I think it depends on perspective. Yeah. And I think um, to, to kind of underscore your point, the fact that you had two liberal justices, Justice Kagan and Justice Breyer, join with the um, conservative justices mm -hmm. kind of you know, emphasizes that this isn't too far of a departure from some of those other establishment clause cases where the court is looking at kind of the history behind this particular religious symbol. Mm -hmm. Um, but as you note, it, it is definitely for those who are on the far right on the court oh, yeah. will be used when you're looking at situations that, that are um, less typical than what we've seen in the past. I think there's one coming out of North Carolina out of the Fourth Circuit that may expand town of Greece. Mm -hmm. um, is it Salisbury County? I'm trying to remember. County that was starting their meetings with, with, prayer. with prayer. secular prayer, right. which the court had gone back and sort of it's allowing greater religion in town of Greece had said was permissible, but here it was a clearly secular prayer, and it, I believe it was led by council members, which was supposed to, and so that's making its way up to the court. So we may see North Carolina may lead to the complete abandonment of Lemon. And, and it's, it, it impacts, uh, impacts us here on, on campus, I mean, because every graduation uh, we have uh, that issue. Uh, that uh, pops up with uh, prayer at the uh, beginning of the uh, uh, ceremony uh, in one form or another. Is it a prayer uh, or are they reflections? Uh, <laughs> well, that's what prayer is, <laughs> a reflection. Sounds like a prayer, doesn't yeah. it, when they start talking. Yeah, so, uh, sure. so it's interesting to see how this is going to be configured uh, now to uh, bring some, I guess, stability uh, to the, uh, to the uh, legal uh, uh, doctrine that uh, that we're dealing with. Right. Okay. All right. So we've got a couple more cases. We're going to try and see that we can uh, squeeze them in. Uh, all right. Gamble, Malik. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Gamble? 
Okay, so Gamble was pulled over driving his car in Alabama for headlight problems. The officer said that he smelled marijuana, which gave grounds for the search. They found a loaded 9mm because he already had a felony conviction. He was guilty of a felon with a gun. He pled guilty to that in state court in Alabama and got a 10-year sentence. And then the federal government came in and basically charged him for the same crime under federal law. Uh, He challenged under double jeopardy the federal government defended under a dual sovereign's defense. And so dual sovereign's defense said that double jeopardy only applies when you are being charged. And they spend a lot of time talking about whether or not it's the same offense if you're being charged by another sovereign. Um, And they're saying it's a different charge because it's a federal charge and not the state charge, even if the underlying um, issues are the same. Alito wrote for the majority and found whether or not he likes the idea that the law has been fairly clear that dual sovereigns can charge you for the same offense and it does not offend uh, double jeopardy. Okay. All right. And the Mitchell case. Yeah, Mitchell is uh, is, is something that we all should be concerned about, and that's uh, driving under the uh, influence. Uh, there are a lot of those cases uh, around, and in fact, uh, our court system is, uh, is full of, uh, of of those cases. But it has to do with uh, breath uh, breath tests and blood tests, uh, breath and uh, uh, breathalyzer uh, tests, uh, where uh, the officer has a uh, uh, reasonable suspicion or really probable cause uh, to arrest someone for driving under the uh, influence. And basically the court uh, holds there that uh, requiring a person uh, to uh, take a breathalyzer test uh, does not violate the, uh, the Constitution because your breath is not something that you have a reasonable expectation of privacy and everybody has to breathe uh, and uh, that's why you smell bad breath. Uh, and uh, the breathalyzer basically picks that up. Uh, and, uh, but uh, when you come to a blood test, uh, that's different because in order to get the blood, there has to be an intrusion into the uh, body of the person and the person can't be forced uh, to uh, uh, submit uh, to a uh, blood test, except uh, in the case of Mitchell, uh, where the person is so drunk that they uh, pass out and they are unconscious and they can't uh, make an election as to whether they will agree to a blood test or not. And there is some uh, medical rationale uh, for the uh, testing of the blood or the withdrawing of the blood, then the uh, Fourth Amendment is not uh, violated uh, when the uh, blood is uh, drawn and is used in the uh, prosecution of the uh, of the person. So, uh, where uh, the uh, individual uh, has a choice, uh, they can't be compelled uh, to do a, uh, a blood test, which was the Mitchell case. But then the uh, follow-up case uh, to that had to do with a person who was. Uh, so drunk that he was unconscious and couldn't make a decision uh, about uh, applying that, uh, then uh, the use of his blood was uh, proper 
uh, in that uh, in that instance. There are a lot of other uh, configuration, but we don't have time to really go into all of the uh, details. So the best thing to do is not drink and drive, <laughs> or if you drink and drive, don't get caught. Don't drink and drive. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's see. Okay. So I want to uh, talk a little bit real quickly about um, a decision by the court that was not a published decision, but it was a decision to grant a stay in a case that was challenging a Louisiana law that was passed in 2014 that required abortion providers to have admitting privileges. Uh, The reason why this is such a consequential case is... um, This will be the first case that if the Supreme Court decides to take it on its merits, where the court will decide an abortion case uh, since the court decided a 2016 case um, where the court struck down a Texas law that had a similar provision. Um, So the thing about this case is um, if the Supreme Court decides to take it, which it probably will because it did grant the stay, uh, the Supreme Court will have to decide this abortion case during the midst of the election. And so we know already that one of the issues that will be um, discussed, heavily discussed, will be the future of the Supreme Court and the future of abortion rights. And so this will be, uh, again, one of the first times that the Supreme Court will be deciding this case. Kennedy is no longer on the bench. Justice Kavanaugh um, filed a dissent in the granting of the stay and has potentially signaled how he might rule when it comes to overruling Roe. So this is a case that we'll be continuing to follow and uh, and to watch. All right, we have just a few minutes left on. Um, there's a case that the Supreme Court's going to be deciding, uh, the DACA case. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Sure, just tell me when to stop, uh, because it has, it has a similar circumstance and impact to this case you just described, in that if the court, the court has already accepted this case and we'll hear it, question is when the decision gets reached at what point will we be in the presidential election cycle because it will be impactful for reasons I'll share with you so DACA is called the deferred action for childhood arrivals I believe and it's basically it was established by President Obama in executive action in 2012 and long story short it allows people that we call undocumented immigrants who arrived here before they were 16 years of age uh, to be eligible for a work permit a driver's license, and a social security number. And essentially, it says that even though we as a country have the right to deport you, we're going to choose not to do that as long as you're you know, living a productive life and so on and so forth, because many of them got here when they were very young. So uh, Trump takes office in 17, uh, January 17, and in September, his administration basically rescinded uh, DACA and decided that it was not going to uh, honor it and, uh, and would not enforce it after March of 18, I believe. So it's been kept alive by various court decisions, um, but now it has reached the Supreme Court. And one of the major questions here is, it goes back to what Professor Joyner talked about, this concept of the political question, because DACA was born through an executive action. And the question is, if the court blocks the withdrawal or removal of DACA, is it now interfering with executive branch business in a way that runs afoul of the Constitution? And if the court decides that that's the case, then it will be a political question and the court will not intervene. And as a result, uh, that would put somewhere between 700,000 and a million uh, young people at the risk of being deported who have been able to live here and stay and thrive under DACA. So uh, there are a couple other legal issues involved as well. We're running a little short on time, so I don't have time to talk about them. But it basically will thrust the issue of immigration further 
uh, and the center of the table, which evidently is where many people want it. So we'll have to see how it unfolds. Okay, we are unfortunately out of time. What we will do is do a deeper dive on, on some of these cases as the uh, as the year progresses. But we hope we've given you a good overview of uh, this most recent term and, and some of the important upcoming cases. Uh, we'd like to thank our guest, uh, NCCU Law Professor and our new Associate Dean, Malik Edwards, and NCCU Law Professor Don Corbett, who was our most recent Associate Dean. Um, and as always, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And we're also happy to announce that you can now hear this show on iTunes. So if you miss any of our past shows, uh, definitely check us out on in podcast form. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed and engaged. Mm-hmm.